Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the cyber ecosystem and how to keep it healthy and hacking the bureaucracy isn't impossible, it's imperative. It's Friday, October 21st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Another highlight today from Cyber Talks presented by FedScoop and CyberScoop. That's coming up in just a moment on the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents in a single, intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. Learn more at sfdc.co slash psh. A look at the cyber ecosystem now. Phil Frigham is section chief of the Cyber Technical Analytics and Operations section in the Cyber Division at the FBI. At CyberTalks, he outlines his agency's mission in cybersecurity. Leading into 2020, the FBI took a hard look at the cybersecurity ecosystem and our place in it. In an effort to ensure we were truly meeting the FBI's mission to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. As a direct result, the FBI restated and repurposed the mission of the Cyber Division. It was no longer sufficient to collect and produce intelligence reporting and wait for the rare opportunity to indict or even rarer opportunity to arrest adversaries conduct conducting attacks against American and allied interests. The FBI's new cyber mission is to impose risk and consequence on cyber adversaries through our unique authorities, world-class capabilities, and enduring partnerships building on a century of innovation. And I'm here today to give you the briefest of glimpses into how we see our role and how we fit into the ultimate team sport that is cybersecurity. So I'd like to focus on those unique authorities and the enduring partnerships today. The FBI ultimately builds a significant amount of our capabilities based on the foundation of a broad spectrum of authorities. Unlike a good number of our partners, we exercise both law enforcement and intelligence community authorities, which provides a level of flexibility unavailable to many of our public and private sector partners. To be clear, we are not successful without these partners. But it is our broad experience and authorities we feel bring us to the table as a constant in this effort. I will speak more about our partnership specific when we get to the FBI cyber value proposition in a moment, but let's focus on these authorities that are invaluable to the FBI. I will give you today what I consider three, poli three policies I think are, are true, and then an absolute truth from my perspective. The first found foundational policy is Presidential Policy Directive 41, referred commonly to by its abbreviation PPD 41. PPD 41 defines where the FBI fits in terms of national policy. According to PPD 41, the FBI is responsible for threat response, and DHS, specifically CISA, is responsible for asset response. But what does that mean? For us, it means the FBI is responsible for investigation and using those investigations and intelligence gained from them to put pressure on the threat. The asset response side is remediation and providing information and intelligence to ensure resiliency and defense are informed at a practical level. The FBI and CISA are necessarily partners in any government response if you consider both responses, asset and threat, are simply the flip side of the same incident response and preparedness coin. And we have a very productive and collaborative relationship with CISA. We strongly believe that because we are partners, we have helped and continue to help CISA mature at a rapid pace, and that our working with them makes them stronger, considering the focus the administration currently has placed on network defense. 
The second policy of focus is actually statutory and is realized in the United States Code, Title 18, Section 1030, and specifically element D2 of that section, which speaks to the FBI's primacy in counterintelligence investigations, to include those with a cyber vector, which means that any entity within the United States struck by a cyber attack from a nation state, the big four being currently China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, and the presumed intent of that actor is for the acquisition of something proprietary or of benefit to that country's economic or strategic situation, 18 U.S.C. 1030 D2 automatically attaches and gives the FBI primary authority to conduct any investigation into the responsible actors. But what does this mean for the victim partner? We get questions all the time. For example, if, say, Company X is hit by a cyber attack and Company X is a clear defense contractor, should Company X call the FBI or the NSA or CISA or you name it? Our answer is, why does it have to be only one? Both agencies or all agencies have equity in addressing the incident and all have complementary roles in investigation and defense. All agencies can and should be part of the discussion, and you heard Colonel Frost speak to this a little bit before. And like our maturing relationship with CISA, the FBI has been working collaboratively with NSA and U.S. Cyber Command and truly all of our U.S. partners to improve overall response. That isn't to say we are where it should be. We are maturing, and it will continue to get better. But in the moment of responding to an actual incident, an answer should be the more the better. But frankly, even if you only call one, it doesn't matter which. Ultimately, we, are in, we will inform each other and work collaboratively collaboratively on addressing whatever we are called to do. The third policy to discuss when considering our unique authorities is the FBI's Domestic Intelligence Authority. By statute, the FBI is the lead agency for purposes of collecting and exploiting domestic intelligence. 18 U.S.C. 1030, as noted previously, applies that narrowly to cyber threats. But it is important to understand that the FBI has a long history and experience collecting, exploiting, disseminating domestic intelligence, which was only reinforced and amplified after 9-11. Our role as lead on domestic intelligence presumes and even dictates a mandate to share with all of our USIC partners when it comes to what is happening in the United States in cyberspace. But it doesn't stop with the USIC. As noted, we work collaboratively with CISA, and even, through, even though they are not formally part of the USIC, we share critical intelligence with them to inform the holistic picture of current threats. Both FBI directly and through CISA and others also seeks whenever possible to expand sharing to the victim of course, but also to a larger sector to improve the overall clarity of the threat. Whether it, is, whether it is ever a truth or not, the government and specifically FBI will not be a one-way street of intelligence from the victim into an investigatory black hole. As a matter of fact, my assistant director is fond of sharing one example where a victim company contacted the FBI after they were hit by a nation state actor. To this day, over two years after the event, the FBI agents involved in assisting that victim are still providing regular updates and status on both the investigatory efforts against the actor as well as relevant network defense information. And this is only one example of the way we look at partnership when we talk about the enduring partnerships in our mission statement. Finally, the truism, and I do believe that despite it sounding like hyperbole, the FBI is the best investigative agency in the country. And that experience garnered over more than 100 years of practice cannot be laid aside when it comes to addressing this threat. No other agency has the scope or scale of resources or the depth of experience. For example, there are discussions today about whether we could perhaps use the RICO statute, commonly used to prosecute organized crime, to cyber crimes when there is an enterprise behind the activity. And with the rapid growth of ransomware as a service observed over the last couple years, it is a novel and innovative approach to thinking about risk and consequence for this threat. 
Ultimately, we'll leave it to the courts, lawyers, and legislators as to hash out whether it actually is the direction we'll go, but RICO violations are highly complex investigations and only an extremely small set of agencies, to include the FBI, have the necessary experience at the end of the day. I want to briefly tangent from here and speak about the importance of attribution. Oftentimes, from a network defense perspective, it is less critical about who an actor was and more important to focus on the tactics, techniques, procedures, indicators of compromise, and other intelligence such as to provide an informative response and remediation. But without attribution, you can't hold anyone accountable. And someone has to be held accountable, regardless of the method of imposing consequence, whether that is an arrest, sanctions, diplomatic impact, whatever. The only way we have to impose risk and to truly decrease the impact of the threat instead of endless cycles of defensive action is to know who it is to hold accountable. We agree with many that we can't indict our way out of this, but someone has to play the long game. In other words, it is equally ineffective to focus only on the individual action that is the individual hacking incident and fix the midterm impact of slowing down communications, burning down servers, seizing domains or dollars, in other words, crypto. At the end of, at end of, the, at the end of it, there is always a person involved and the FBI has proven track record of long memory being able to play that long game to hold bad actors to account. Which brings us to the FBI, what FBI brings to this arena that is our value proposition. First and foremost, we are comprised of a decentralized workforce. That is, we have 56 field offices and many resident agencies across the United States. We can typically have someone physically on site to discuss the impact implications of a computer attack within an hour domestically. And if you consider our global penetration and the use of our assistant legal attache cadre, responded within 24 hours to, a, to almost 40 countries around the globe. Why is this important? Put simply, in a moment of crisis, human interaction is critical to a compassionate response. And regardless of the actual crime, it is a core tenet of the FBI that every victim of a federal crime, regardless of that crime, is entitled to a compassionate and sincere response. Second, the FBI acts as a force multiplier, both before and during any cyber incident. We frequently, formally or informally, categorize private sector partners into two loose categories of cyber mature and cyber nascent organizations. Sometimes, but not always, this will coincide with a partner's overall resources. In reality, this is simply a way at looking at how a particular entity is positioned overall in their cybersecurity maturity. For mature organizations, that is ones with robust and established cybersecurity programs, we offer the ability to amplify access, access to public resources, including access to interagency and other partners. We have technical resources which can amplify internal response methods and techniques and provide technical tools to aid in both triage and understanding of the incident to include the ability to analyze large-scale network data based on known indicators of compromise by nation-state actors. For nascent organizations, in addition to all those I've already mentioned, we offer additional guidance on navigating complex public and private landscapes, including, for example, leveraging the FBI's Victim Services Division to help a company craft communications which result from potential breach notification requirements and other regulatory responsibilities. I wanted to specifically address the question of whether or not to call or contact the FBI during a ransomware event. It's been a big question as of late. Look, we understand that at the end of the day, a decision to pay or not to pay is essentially a math equation. Any private organization has to balance, well, the balance sheet. And when they are looking at an outage lasting hours or even days, uh, we can understand why some choose to pay. But even if the decision is made to pay the ransom, we ask that you work with us as there, are, as there may, may be a chance that we can use what we learn from what you tell us to help prevent someone else, or even you again, 
from being a victim of the same or at least reduce the global impact of that threat. Also, a lot of questions have arisen as of late around the risk of paying or not paying sanctioned entities. And I'll be honest, the State Department has given and is not going to provide any additional clarity or guidance above what they already have. But if it matters in your decision process, the FBI can aid in intelligence, which may factor into your decision calculus. Finally today, I want to talk about our focus on what our leadership is referring to our Ritz-Carlton level of service. No offense to the current host. Uh, put simply, it is unacceptable for us to, uh, to be idle in the presence of a partner looking to work with us. Our investigations depend on corporations with victims, uh, cooperation with victims, and our ability to exploit intelligence is even more dependent on our ability to collectively work with the broad spectrum of partners, be they today's victim or simply a potential future victim. I mentioned earlier that we can have an FBI agent on anyone's doorstep within an hour. The challenge is, of course, the number of cyber-trained personnel is only a subset of our workforce, and because of the way we structure our investigations, the subject matter expert on a specific threat actor may be on the entire other side of the country. But regardless of that, it is beholden on us to ensure, as I also previously mentioned, that any victim or potential victim is provided with a sincere and compassionate response. Let's take an example of, say, a victim in Denver experiencing a Hive ransomware attack. The investigation team looking into Hive is not in Denver. So our expectation for Denver agents responding to that victim might sound like this. Hello, I'm an agent from the Denver field office. I'm here to help you in any way I can. Please know that I've already alerted the team in the FBI office covering the Hive ransomware. They're prepared to speak with you at a time convenient to you and plan to share each bit of information we have access to. I can also call CISA, NSA, or your sector risk management agency as appropriate to ensure you have access to them. What can I do for you right now? And while this seems very little to start with, I can tell you from 17 years of experience, it is not what we used to do. But it is what we aim for now. It is what victims deserve and it is what they expect. Once we've established that initial contact, our ongoing expectation is that we provide continued empathy and patience with the victim, that we set expectations what the FBI can and can't do, that we encourage the victim to provide timely information and more importantly explain to them why uh, and walk them through why it is critical. Not just for the speed of our investigation but also for our ability to provide relevant intelligence and data back to the victim. That we continue to share as it becomes known relevant information back to that victim and not just status but indicators of compromise and other technical intelligence which may be of network defense value. And finally that we establish an ongoing dialogue with the victim that outlasts the duration of the current event. I want to thank you again for allowing me to speak to you today. I hope that the information cursory as it is was informative and may have sparked additional questions. In fact, I'm extremely hopeful that I have, in fact, left you with a desire to expand upon what I've said here today, and I would welcome you to reach out this after to engage with us on anything of value we can provide to your efforts. Thank you. Phil Frigham of the FBI at Cyber Talks. You can find a link to watch the entire speech in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Salesforce brings the public sector and customers together in the digital age. To access the new Veteran Mental Health and Resiliency Resources module, go to trailhead.salesforce.com. 
Two leaders with experience in hacking bureaucracy are writing about that experience. Nick Sinai is senior advisor at Insight Partners. He's former deputy chief technology officer of the United States. Marina Nitza is partner at Layer Aleph. She's former chief technology officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs, and they are authors of Hack Your Bureaucracy, Get Things Done No Matter Your Role on Any Team. Folks, thanks very much for joining me today. Marina, I want to start with you. What's the genesis of this? What was the situation where you and and Nick were sitting around and thought, you know, that's the topic and we should write a book about that? Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. So uh, I joined the federal government as part of the first class of presidential innovation fellows in 2012, uh, where Nick was my boss. And I believed at the time that government was just irreparably broken. You couldn't do anything to fix it. And I was going to prove that to myself when I went in. Uh, and I was totally wrong. I learned from Nick, from Richard Kulata, from Kumar Garg, Tom Cleo, all these amazing bureaucracy hackers that there's actually a lot of ways to make tremendous positive change at scale. And then we tried and, and used a lot of them at the VA and they kept working and I kept learning them from other people. And so we had this vision of uh, writing all these down for ourselves, frankly, to help our own work. And then that, that slowly grew into the book. When you, Marina, went into VA and had that mindset, had that worldview, and those folks helped you see differently, was that a case of them teaching you to think differently, or did you all kind of learn it together at the same time, or what was the thought germination process there? Uh, I wouldn't say other people at the VA thought that everything was irreparably broken, but I think a lot of people felt things were irreparably difficult, and some of it was us learning together. Um, and some things took a really long time, right? Like I remember working on trying to get cloud computing approved at the VA. Uh, that took years and led to some kind of funny stories around how the inspector general wouldn't let us use it at first because you couldn't put it in an evidence bag. Uh, although we ended up, you know, befriending them and, and showing them how they had alternative tools. So a lot of it was really hands-on and a lot of it was getting the chance to learn from a lot of really amazing directly hackers these stories we put in the book. I would be remiss in my job as a host if we didn't come back to the funny stories, Marina. Nick, welcome. Thanks for coming on. You've always been a tremendous advocate of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. We've talked about it on a number of my uh, programs over time. What was it about that group of people that made you so enthusiastic early on that gave you hope that there was opportunity to hack bureaucracy? Yeah, it was such a great set of, of folks who, wanted to take a risk, who wanted to come in and, and, and do something. And I, I think Marina is being, being charitable. She, she also wanted to uh, uh, do, some, do some good, but maybe uh, uh, also disprove her, her libertarian tendencies. Uh, and, and it really was a fantastic group of people who were willing to take a risk, really build it as experiment. That first couple, uh, Todd Park and Steve Van Rokel and John Farmer and Ariane Gallagher, they, we were explicit that, that this was going to be an experiment and we were going to try some things and, and not everything worked, frankly. Uh, but I think part of the genius, of, we've talked about this in the past, Francis, is, is this notion of, of pairing presidential innovation fellows with innovators uh, inside of the federal government. And it's that combination that is so powerful, uh, bringing outside experiences and skills and, and, and really marrying it deep understanding the way things work and the art of the possible inside of an organization. And that's really what our, our book is about is, uh, can you understand an organization, the rules, the people, uh, the way things work before you try and disrupt it? Because if you come in and try and just blow the whole thing up, that, that doesn't work. And we saw that happen 
time and time again, I spent uh, four years in OSTP. Uh, some of my colleagues spent eight years. And so they, you know, saw a lot of, a lot of people come in and try and make change. Some were very successful boss on park at the time and, and some were, were very unsuccessful. And so we wanted to write down a bunch of things. I also uh, teach at the Harvard Kennedy School. And so, you know, some of these things are, are, are what I tell my students. Of the stuff that you tried that worked, Nick, are there common threads, common themes among those that people can now see to do or see to avoid? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in the, in the, in the book about uh, really trying to understand first, uh, so trying to understand the, the normal process. Uh, um, even, even if you hear it's broken, giving it a shot and, and really documenting it and understanding why it, it may be broken. Um, you'll have better data on, on how to fix it. Um, really understanding the people in an organization uh, and getting, getting to know them as human beings. Uh, a lot of this isn't rocket science, um, but it, it, it does take so, some uh, uh, checking of your uh, tendencies, especially if you're coming in as, as a entrepreneur or, 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 or something like that. Marina, how did you overcome that idea that everything was broken? Was there some event or was it a series of events or was it just an evolution of your thought process over time? And, and how did that manifest itself in the activities that you undertook that then caused you to say, okay, we should, now that we've had this experience, we should write it down and share it with people? Yeah, it was an evolution, but I think what really opened my eyes was working on the VA's disability claims process. So I started working on that from OSPP and then became the CTO of the VA. Um, so I spent, you know, a few months traveling around the country following the process from start to finish. And this is one of my favorite tactics in the book that we call look between the silos, which is the larger your organization gets, the more steps there are, the less likely it is that any one person on the planet knows how the entire process works from start to finish. Um, and usually that's a really incredible insight that anybody can use, no matter who you are, to, to find efficiencies or improvements that you can make along the way. And I just kept seeing like, oh my God, there's all these ways that we can really help veterans and I know how to do them or I'm, I'm around someone that knows how to do them. And seeing that uh, progress over years, I was at the VA until 2017, um, was really, really inspirational. All right, Marina, there are a number of the tactics, the 56 tactics that you outline in this book that you and Nick have picked out as your favorites. And I have a couple favorites of your favorites that I want to ask you about. Use the bureaucracy Great. against itself is the first one I want to start with. What's the principle behind that? And how does one go about doing that successfully, Marina? Yeah, so bureaucracies are actually changing all the time. And this is a myth we kind of want to butt to people who think that they are immovable. And if you think about it, performance plans change every year. Uh, strategic plans change every year. The PMA, there's all these things that are actually changing. And so you want to understand those rhythms and then use them to your advantage. Um, one example there would be when I started at the VA, we didn't have a depth tech. And so the depth tech uh, duties were divided across a bunch of us. And I went to the PMA meetings and someone needed to draft a slide on a technology goal. And I was like, hmm, you know, I'm trying to build this thing called the United States Digital Service. I really want to have an agency team at the VA. I will make this slide say the VA will host the first digital service team at an agency and we'll have 75 employees. And I assumed someone was going to edit that slide out or add their own bullet. But edit after edit, that didn't happen. And then suddenly, this goal was in the president's management agenda. And now I can go to OPM and my own HR and say, hey, look, we're on the hook to the president of the United States for 75 headcounts. Uh, and so that would be one example of using the bureaucracy where you're codifying the change that you want to see 
such that everyone's incentives align around doing the thing that you need them to do. Nick, the idea of silos are uh, permeate the everything that everybody talks about just about in government. One of the ideas that you propose is to look between the silos. What does one find when one looks between the silos and how does that benefit the ability to hack the bureaucracy in the language of your book? Yeah, I, I think there's between silos, there's these these poor uh, handoffs oftentimes. And, and so that's just it's rich opportunity. But between bureaus or between offices, the, the antibodies aren't for change anyway, aren't aren't as strong. Uh, and and so uh, Marina has this great example in the book where uh, she sat on a bench uh, in a Menlo Park VA uh, and, and met a spouse of a veteran uh, who, who had spent uh, close to a year in a VA hospital. He had a, a, a complicated medical condition and the spouse raved about the, the medical care that the veteran was getting. But when she asked, uh, well, what about the other benefits? Uh, the spouse had zero idea that the VA had, I don't know, what, 80 lines of benefits on healthcare, right? And and that's just an example of, of, of VHA and VBA maybe not uh, working as well together. And it's just an opportunity for, for change. Stab people in the chest, Marina. I'm not sure I would have expected either one of you wonderfully nice people to advocate violence. I'm sure that's not literal. What does that mean? Uh, it's not literal violence, but what it means is Good. when you're about to disagree with your peer or your uh, your boss, uh, instead of disagreeing with someone in front of the secretary or thinking you're going to come out and make your like really compelling persuasive argument uh, and and win the battle, you got to go sit down with them one on one and explain, hey, here on slide 13, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say this. And the goal of that is not to get the other person to change their mind. It's to build trust that you're not going to stab them in the back. And uh, that sounds a little bit unconventional, but I have used this to great effect because you're going to disagree with lots of peers, right, in these bureaucratic environments. And you want to have that trust that you're not going to stab them in the back so that you have a functional working relationship for all the other things that you have to work on together. That level of trust, Marina, seems to be, I mean, we see it in, in management books and advice and so on all the time, but it still seems to be difficult for people to get to. Why do you think that is? And how did how do you think you overcame that and developed that ability to not just trust other people, but to be trustworthy yourself? I mean, it's absolutely hard. There are a few things more difficult for me, and I'm very introverted and a little bit shy, actually, to sit down one-on-one -on -one with someone that I'm going to disagree with and walk through it. Like, that is not comfortable. Um, but what helped me, frankly, is once I forced myself to do it a few times, seeing the benefits of doing it made that become something that I knew as hard as it was, I was going to, you know, if you've read that business parable, eat that frog. Uh, if you have to eat a frog, you're supposed to do it first, you know, get it, get through it. Um, there's also a little quote from Bob Parsons that's, uh, if what's the worst they can do, like, can they eat you? And so I would say that to myself all the time before I went into one of these meetings, I would remind myself that the worst that could happen was not that they could eat me. And so it was going to be okay. Nick, strangling the mainframe does not surprise me to come from technologists like the two of you as something that is uh, a, a wise practice. What's the depth behind that idea, though? Yeah, it's actually a, a technology idea of um, starting to kind of build adjacent to the actual mainframe rather than trying to replace it, right? Mainframes are actually pretty good at doing very uh, high-volume batch processing, and they, they run... Uh, a lot of our economy at CMS and IFS and, and other places as well. And 
efforts to kind of just pull them out uh, often fail. Uh, and that's kind of a, a longer uh, topic. But uh, um, one of the ways to kind of build modern capability is to do it adjacent in smaller pieces. And over time, you're able to essentially strangle the mainframe and then be able to, to uh, if, if you want to, uh, uh, take it completely away. And it, it's actually an analogy for, for a way to attack big, hairy problems outside of technology, too. Um, and and in, in large organizations, there's usually some multi-year digital transformation or, or, or kind of grand planning exercise that's going on for years and years. And, you know, yes, you're going to have to accept that that's the, the natural state of, of, of a bureaucracy. But our advice is to uh, start small and start adjacent to the big, hairy problem, because as you start to build momentum, you start to get more more resources and more authority and everything. And so you start to actually strangle strangle the problem. And that's exactly what Marina did with uh, uh, VA.gov, right? She she took 1,500 websites and consolidated it into a, a single website. It was all uh, VA-centric, and now it's veteran-centric. And, you know, this was a period of, of five-plus years, and, and, and uh, uh, Charles Worthington, the current CTO, gets, gets a lot of credit, too, and, and, and the hundreds of, of feds that have, and contractors that have, have worked with them. Uh, but fundamentally, that started as a little flanker project, right? That was vets.gov, uh, and, and it was an alpha that was just trying to show the art of the possible. And that gained so much momentum, it actually reverse merged uh, into VA.gov. And, and now you have veteran trust in the VA that has gone up 25 percentage points. Uh, we've talked about this on your shows in the past. And in part, that's because of a, a more veteran-centric digital experience. All right. Funny story time. Marina, you go first. Tell me a funny story out of this book that people can look forward to. Okay. So uh, one of the challenges that we had when we were trying to get cloud computing across the, uh, the uh, IT approval line at the VA was that you had to prove that you had jiggled the doorknob of the server room. And uh, for anyone that does not know what cloud computing is, there is no doorknob. There is no door. Like There is no room of, of cloud computing. And so I spent uh, a long time, and I talk about in the book, trying to like metaphorically dance through how I was conceptually jiggling doorknobs and, and, uh, there was, there was a lot of doorknob jiggling. And, uh, eventually that we, we ultimately had to change the form itself to remove the doorknob question. Uh, and then we're going to get cloud computing approved. Nick, what's your favorite funny story out of this book? Um, probably me getting thrown out of the white house science fair. Um, I totally deserved it. Uh, I was, I was, I was committing the, the near cardinal sin of a White House staffer, and that is being a tourist. Um, and I had managed to trade trade on access and, and favors and get a blue badge and was in the green room with, uh, I think, another scientist, one other staffer. And it was a few minutes before the president was going to come in and, and spend five minutes talking to the scientists alone. And I was just going to witness this. Um, and, and clearly, I had not been doing enough to help with the White House Science Fair and was just being a tourist. And uh, the White House uh, uh, staff secretary, um, or social secretary, uh, uh, Disha, came in and kind of interrogated me and rightly threw me out of the room. Um, and I totally deserved it. You know, I, I, I prided myself on being more of a, a, a doer and a workhorse than a show horse. But in that particular moment, I, I was caught being, being a tourist and, and deserved it. 
at least you own it. And that's one of the reasons I love you. Uh, it's great to see you, Nick. Marina, thanks very much for coming on. Hack your bureaucracy. Get things done no matter what your role on any team. Congratulations to both of you. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to read more about their book in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday. Until then, have a great weekend. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.